Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. For centuries, Brooklyn has been home to entrepreneurs establishing small businesses. For black Brooklynites, the opportunity to own their own enterprises came with deep social and political meaning and its own set of challenges, whether those challenges were acquiring credit, drawing customers across races, and owning real estate. In this episode, we profile some of the remarkable businesses and the people behind them who shaped this borough and created a lasting legacy for generations of black Brooklynites to follow. Elizabeth Gloucester was a rock star of the 19th century. (laughs) She dies one of the richest women, definitely in Brooklyn, but maybe even the United States at that time. Wow. incredible. She has a boarding house on Remsen Street, which is right here in Brooklyn Heights. And the newspaper just says she had a variety of other businesses. Probably the most important bit is she actually funds John Brown's raid to Harper's Ferry. She's part of the circle. I mean, Frederick Douglass is considered a friend. uh, He stays at the Gloucester's home. Um, She's constantly in touch with John Brown, who, of course, was trying to fundraise from African-American communities before he goes down to Harper's Ferry. This document is really interesting, and I have to say, when uh, we were planning this segment and you said to me, let's look at the incorporation paper, I immediately, I I think I like fell asleep. (laughs) I think I completely zoned out when you said incorporate. I was like, oh God, incorporation paper. And um, these, this is not your standard issue papers of incorporation, right? Um, it's actually incredibly moving. It, it really is. Yeah. Like if you ever think, you know, like reading papers of incorporation sure. could be inspiring. Uh, this is a set of papers you wanna yeah. you wanna start with. And within the first few years, we became the biggest credit union of our kind in the country. Um, and we were seen as like these young sort of Afrocentric, you know, like our politics were uh, black, but but we were still green in terms of recognizing the um, the economic potential of our neighborhood. In the 19th century, black businessmen and women shaped both the economic and political landscape of Brooklyn. To discuss this, we're welcoming Preeti Kanakamedala to the podcast today. Preeti is an assistant professor of history at Bronx Community College, CUNY. Prior to that, she worked here at BHS, where she was a curator and lead historian on In Pursuit of Freedom, a public history partnership of BHS, Weeksville Heritage Center, and Irondale Ensemble Project. In Pursuit of Freedom explored the untold stories of anti-slavery activism in Brooklyn. An active public historian, Preeti is currently a scholar-in-residence at Dance Space Project at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery. Hey, Preeti. Welcome back to BHS. Thank you. You can never get away from us. You know that, right? (laughs) (laughs) This is true. (laughs) So, uh, Preeti, tell us a little bit about your research on Brooklyn's black communities in the 19th century and specifically how you came to find this fascinating uh, figure, Elizabeth Gloucester. Sure. So it came out of the research for In Pursuit of Freedom. Um, The research was four years in the making, and it was a whole group of us. It was a phenomenal group of uh, research assistants, uh, research interns, and myself. And we were really looking to put back into Brooklyn's history its vibrant black communities that had existed. Weeksville Heritage Center, of course, have done a great amount of work on their historic communities. But there were, in the 19th century, communities that existed in what we call today downtown Brooklyn, um, going into sort of Vinegar Hill Dumbo, um, Fort Greene. And so Elizabeth Gloucester came about really as one of the many, many people that we just kept unearthing at the time. 
And I think, like most historians, you don't realize the magnitude of what you found until you keep digging. So Elizabeth Gloucester first appears, like most women and most women of color do, in the archives in the 19th century as the wife of somebody. So she's the wife of James Gloucester, who comes to Shiloh Presbyterian Church. Today, of course, that's in Bedford-Stuyvesant. But at that time, it was in downtown Brooklyn. And she, yeah, she's basically named as his wife in most of the census records or in the newspapers. She's Mrs. E.A. Gloucester. And then when we did a little bit of digging around her, we found actually she had a remarkable story all of her own. She had been born free in Virginia and had moved to Philadelphia at the age of six. And she marries into this sort of remarkable family, the Gloucesters. James' father, John, is the founder of the Black Presbyterian Church. So she comes from this sort of long history of sort of anti-slavery activism, pioneering what it means to be African-American in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Gloucesters come to New York around the 1840s, but the story really picks up when her husband becomes the minister of Shiloh Presbyterian. Now, this is a church that is still standing today. Yes. Right. And if people are looking for this church, how would they find it? Well, being British, I can tell you that the spelling (laughs) isn't going to match the pronunciation. Oh, is that right? (laughs) Absolutely. So the spelling is S-I-L-O-A-M, but pronounced Shiloh Presbyterian. How How did you learn the pronunciation? You ask Brooklynites. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All okay, right. so go on. Yes. So they get they get to Shiloh. Yeah, absolutely. So they get to Shiloh, and the Gloucesters really make that a place, I would say, of anti-slavery activism, right? It becomes a network of one of many black churches in downtown Brooklyn in the mid-19th century that are really pushing the way, I would say, for anti-slavery activism and as stops on the Underground Railroad. Elizabeth then sort of splinters off and starts doing her own thing. And what I mean by that is she is fundraising constantly. So Mm -hmm. while she might be fundraising for the church, she's also fundraising for other really well-known black institutions in New York at that time. She is on a women's fundraising committee for the Colored Orphan Asylum out in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. She is fundraising for various charities in Brooklyn, and you can find all of that information in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. And when the Civil War hits, she's also part of an effort to think about what the aftermath of federal emancipation is going to be. So for those of you with a little bit of historical knowledge, we know about the Freedmen's Bureau, right? Mm -hmm. That's the federal agency that was to deal with the education and employment of freed men post-Civil War into Reconstruction. Elizabeth is one of many, many black women and indeed many free black communities across the North who are setting up organizations called the American Freedmen's Friends Society. And there's a distinction because those friends societies tended to be far more grassroots and were often helping the community from within. And so Elizabeth Gloucester's name constantly appears. Mm. She kind of disappears from the archives between the 1860s and I would say 1880. And then in 1883, when she dies, there is an amazing obituary in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. And I think for us, that was the moment that crystallized that... Elizabeth Gloucester was a rock star of the 19th century. (laughs) And just how much black women have been holding down their communities for centuries. She dies one of the richest women, definitely in Brooklyn, but maybe even the United States at that time. Wow. It's incredible. Yeah. And the way in which she does it, and there is still research to be done here, I would say, and I I would love to find some time to continue the thread, but um, she has a boarding house on Remsen Street, which is right here in Brooklyn Heights. And the newspaper just says she had a variety of other businesses. And when you kind of follow her husband through, he actually dies impoverished. So it was her that was really... Wow, he does after her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he moves out to Long Island um, in the 1880s somewhere. So she's like a financial powerhouse. Oh, yeah. And then looking back at the history of her activism, you can almost see her cutting her teeth on the fundraising of that, of the 50s and 60s, and then having it kind of come into fruition for her business after. It it also... (laughs) says something about the community right that the ability i mean there's a market here right so there's there's clearly 
uh, resources existing in the community for these funds to be raised or for, I'm wondering, were the people who were staying in her boarding uh, house, were they African-American or were they white people? Like, what was her, like, where's this money? I'm mean, clearly there's their resources here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a little difficult to answer who mm-hmm. was staying in the boarding house. Uh, again, it's an assumption. I assume it would have been a mixed boarding house just because of its location. Um, however, yeah, absolutely. She is tapping into all sorts of resources. You know, she appears in the black press in the 1860s. She's appearing in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. And they're constantly saying black people and white people are showing up to these fundraising oh, wow. events. Okay. Um, she is ordering the most exquisite oysters to these fundraising oh. events to eat. Um <laughs> So, you know, she really, I think, has a sort of very pioneering notion of what it means to be a woman and a woman of color that needs to be seen, right, on Brooklyn's public, in Brooklyn's public sphere. It's interesting because it brings up themes of uplift and respectability Mm -hmm. that -hmm. I think we normally associate with the late 19th and early 20th century but you can really see the origins here that her her vision of herself as a successful business person Mm -hmm. and a successful person in a civic community has everything to do with the condition of her race right yeah absolutely um and what I wouldn't want to say and what I would move away from is the notion that she is aspiring to be you know a society lady she was um, for lack of a better word a badass Mm -hmm. right Um, what I missed out and probably the most important bit is she actually funds John Brown's raid to Harper's Ferry wow yeah serious she yeah yeah, she's a mill. Ha- I mean, how did that come about? Sure. So she's part of the circle. I mean, Frederick Douglass is considered a friend. They, uh, he stays at the Gloucester's home. Um, she's constantly in touch with John Brown, who, of course, was trying to fundraise from African-American communities before he goes down to Harper's Ferry. And he got the same response from everybody as I think you would he probably get today, which is, that sounds great. Freedom sounds excellent. But you're crazy. Yeah. You go by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Elizabeth Gloucester's letter is at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Um, and it is a beautiful letter. She encloses $10, which was a, a huge amount of money mm-hmm. in that day, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you're thinking about... Um, the average working man was making around two hundred, three hundred dollars a year. Yeah, she gives him ten dollars mm-hmm. um, and says, "Go, go, free everybody." Um, and what I love about that letter is, and I think something that we kind of get at as historians, but don't always hear from sort of the subjects or the historical actors themselves is she talks about the pain of racism. She talks about that oppression. And she says, you know, her spirit is weary and she she wants to see the revolution. Um, She wants to see change in the country. So I think from that perspective, that's why I would just caution. Yes, she absolutely is. She clearly liked the fine things in life fundraising, but she also had this very sort of radical militant side to her that was like freedom is going to be achieved in different ways. And this is just one of the many ways in which we can do it. It seems like there's actually like an extra level to the bravery of that donation in the sense that she was a business person. Mm -hmm. And we I think we normally associate business people with being relatively conservative in yeah. And and moderate, at least in their in their in their sort of political statements. And I mean, for her to own that, knowing the financial risk that it could put her and her family into, and then of course on top of that, um, how that could affect her community um, yeah. is pretty powerful. Yeah, I mean, I think it's you know this is the the um, the I don't want to say burden, but the extra weight that black business people have to carry at, seemingly at any given point in American history where your business can't just be business, right? Like it has to, and people are, people have expectations that you are not just concerned about the bottom line, that green can't just be your only color, that you have to be concerned about black people. People expect you to be loyal to the community. There's a, a kind of expectation of reciprocity. If we are helping to keep you in business, we expect you to help us. And, and so you do have this history throughout of black business people 
having to fund either openly or covertly mm -hmm. um, different, you know, uh, efforts at obtaining freedom to varying degrees. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just to put her in context, she's not doing this by herself. There is another very prominent black businesswoman, Mary Wilson, um, who is the wife of William J. Wilson. Um, friend of the podcast. Friend of the podcast. <laughs> we, we loved, we talked him. about We read him. his letters. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, William J. Wilson, as you probably know, then has this amazing piece in the Anglo-African magazine or at the Anglo-African Weekly in which he talks about the need. You know, Brooklyn's changing. It's going to become the largest city in the United States. Brooklynites knew it. They knew the importance of their city. And so you had this educator stroke journalist talking about along Atlantic Avenue, it is changing. Mm -hmm. Black people mm -hmm. need to grab those business opportunities mm -hmm. and create commercial you know, enterprises for themselves. We need to own part of this. And it is a, such a charming piece. So he zips through uh, Atlantic and ends up at a particular store. And he talks about this charming black woman that is, um, I believe it's a clothes store. And of course, he's talking about his wife, Mary Wilson. Oh, that's um, lovely. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very charming <laughs> She's piece. She's like, you better write about me. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the finale. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, so Elizabeth Gloucester's community, she's part of that business community. And exactly like you were saying, Zaheer, a business community that understand the burden, right, of being both entrepreneurs, but also that they're leading these really sort of tenuous lives in which freedom is constantly being negotiated. Mm -hmm. They might be free, but there is so much work to be done, both here in Brooklyn and beyond in terms of their identities. There's something kind of interesting going on here about the relationship between business and capitalism mm -hmm. and politics mm -hmm. in the sense that I think as you just articulated, Wilson articulating, mm -hmm. in the 19th century, it was like, we need to own this. We need to claim our place in American capitalism. And then by, the, by you know, 100 years later, I think there's another question, which is, can you, can you be an advocate for equality and still function in, in right. and, and still function right. in a system of capitalism. Right. And it's like a really interesting twist on that. Well, you know, there is a, there is this ongoing debate mm -hmm. about what avenue people should take in, right. in the African-American community. There's there's the folks who supported the kind of integrated liberal reforms, you know, the early Du Bois then there are the folks who said, we're just going to accommodate ourselves to the separate spheres, uh, the Booker T. Washington. And then you had, you know, in the early 20th century, especially with the emergence of the kind of articula formal articulation of Marxism, you had people saying, well, neither of those are going to free us. And so we have to radically transform the system in order for, you know, more equitable distribution of, of resources. And Du Bois was going there towards the latter part of his life. But I do think that it's not a closed question. And, and people are still, it's funny as you were talking about, like, William Wilson's telling people they need to you could walk through brooklyn now and hear mm -hmm. people say like y'all yeah. better buy this stuff up yes. because it's going yeah it's quite amazing that these were questions that that this early community in brooklyn had already begun grappling with right right absolutely and again if you look at the thread of just black women entrepreneurs right i look at somebody like elizabeth gloucester and then you read about sort of the more recent research around Madam C.J. Walker, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. and her beauty products and what she was doing in terms of the internationalist movement. And I was thinking more recently about Carol's daughter and how that's taken yes. off. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's these ways in which I think when people say activism, people kind of shy away from it and say, I'm not an activist. I don't know what that means. But activism really comes in the most ordinary of forms, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think, like you were saying, Julie, I think business entrepreneurship is just one way in which that happens. I think that the importance of recovering the stories of women mm -hmm. uh, in business is yeah. especially important because, I mean, when you look at like black church history or black religious history, it's, it's always about the pastor and like these male figures. I think it's so important to center the story about like that there were, there were women who were, who were taking charge here. But it, it takes a long time to piece together um, specifically black women's lives, I think, from the 19th century. Part of that has to do with the way in which we have collected archives. 
Part of that's got to do with the way in which we've been telling our historical narratives. I think part of it, honestly, has been a sort of lack of imagination, right? Black women have always held down their communities. Mm -hmm. We don't need to be told that in writing. And that the emphasis, as you said, has always gone on the male, right? Mm Because we used to do um, we being humans. (laughs) We used to do head of households. Right, right. And so head of households would often sort of silence what the woman was doing. So it takes a lot. It takes a lot to put it all together. But eventually, I think, like most historians, you use empathy, you use imagination, you think about, we are not actually that radically different as humans throughout the century. So who was probably doing the actual work in that house? And who was actually doing the community work, even as William J. Wilson is the journalist, even as James Gloucester is the minister of Shiloh Presbyterian? Well, I feel like I was lucky enough to work with you when you were having this amazing process of putting together her life. And after finding her in the Eagle and in church records, many other things, I have a really wonderful memory of a day that we spent in Greenwood Cemetery. Do you remember it? I do. (laughs) Clue me in because I missed out. We were just walking along as you do. It was actually a really lovely, beautiful day. Right. All our listeners who are local should go to Greenwood and just walk around and find some dead people, right? Absolutely. And, and but we knew she was buried there, right? Right. We knew she was buried yes. there. We like really had this moment where we like turned a corner and like there she was. Yeah. With like a pretty significant headstone, right? Yeah. Are those called headstones? I don't. It was it was like a pillar. It's a pillar. Yeah. It's mm. a beautiful stone pillar which again tells you how much money she would have had when she died. In yeah. in one of the most sort of respectable and celebrated graveyards mm. in the country at that time. Preeti, was there anything that you weren't able to find out about Elizabeth Gloucester that you wished that you could? Sure. I don't know if I wished I could have, just because I think it adds to the charm of her story and the importance of knowing these people. But most people love a portrait, right, mm-hmm. of these historical actors or people from the past. Um, and there's nothing of Elizabeth Gloucester. Ugh. There's her signature, and I mm. sort of cherish her signature, but um, there's nothing else of her. And I think that tells you so much about the ways in which we have to do history, right? And that we have to engage with history. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush and Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. Today we're looking at a document that I think is one of the most sort of evocative and surprising documents in our archives. And I say that because it's a financial document that has so much more to tell than just some some rules about a company becoming incorporated. And the document that Zahir and I are looking at today is the Rules of Association for a company called the Brooklyn Brush Manufacturing Company. The pamphlet is a printed pamphlet and it's dated 18. 18- 55. And this company is significant because it's started by an African-American man named Freeman Moreau, who invented what appears to be, um, by all notions, a very ingenious little invention, a, an unusual paintbrush that actually makes painting, whitewashing, and varnishing a lot easier than it was before it was invented. And the document that we're looking at is about 15, 16 pages long Mm -hmm. document. A lot of it consists of the bylaws of this company that is being incorporated with the state. At the same time, it's also filled with these sort of wonderful and descriptive and tantalizing passages that tell us really explicitly about Murrow's politics, about his understanding of America and its opportunities and limits at this moment in history. And it makes no bones about the connection between entrepreneurialism and politics. Let's talk a little bit about Freeman Murrow to understand what he put into this document. He lived in Williamsburg, and this is in the 1850s. Now, for our listeners, you may remember our previous episode where we talked about the history of Williamsburg with Francis Morell and all of his recollections that he wrote in 1915 about what was going on in 1850s uh, Williamsburg. And he talked about all these quote unquote colored people. 
Yeah, uh, where he, was Freeman Murrow? Yeah, Freeman Murrow was where not was one of those inventor, people. Where was our inventor and entrepreneur? Exactly, <laughs> but Freeman Murrow was apparently quite um, significant in, in Williamsburg. He lived at 90 Messerole Street, and he had come up with this idea for this brush, and it's, it's represented here. Yeah, and if you look at some of the names in this document, um, people like Simeon Jocelyn or Henry Wright, um, people who are trustees or lawyers um, for this company, these are you can see he's part of a circle of middle-class activists who were very much the leaders in the anti-slavery movement at the time. I was actually looking here for the Hodges names. Remember we talked about the Hodges in the episode um, who were also um, businessmen at the time, but they were not in this. But that doesn't mean that they weren't running in sort of the same circles at the time. So while we don't necessarily know that he was specifically at, uh, you know, abolitionist rallies or participating in these sort of explicitly political events, we do know that this was very much part of the community that he was operating in at the time. This document is really interesting. And I have to say, when uh, we were planning this segment and you said to me, let's look at the incorporation paper, I immediately, I, I think I like <laughs> fell asleep. Like, I think I completely zoned out when you said incorporation. I was like, oh God, incorporation papers. And um, these, this is not your standard issue papers of incorporation, no. right? It's actually incredibly moving. Um, it, it really is. <laughs> yeah. Like if you ever think, you know, like reading papers of incorporation sure. could be inspiring. Uh, this is a set of papers you want to yeah. you want to start with. Yeah. The papers were filed in 1854, according to the document here, and begins with a preface. Now, the preface is really, really striking because it starts off by saying, whereas the Constitution of the United States of free America has neither declared, described, nor designated any class, sect, or complexion. And I was I immediately saw that and said, whoa. Yeah, that's like, right. This is... Complexion. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like this yeah. is very clear, yeah. you know, that they are embarking on this business enterprise with a very uh, clear understanding of how it connects to this quest uh, that African Americans have been on throughout American history. And like a seizure of, a, of American identity right at the start. Like, let me just just set it aside, right, whether right. there's any debate about this. Right. This is my constitution, right? Yeah, and, it, and you know, and it's almost like the resolves, it's the next section that says resolves, uh, that the principal motive of this is companies to establish within its jurisdiction and government um, the principles provided in the preamble of the Constitution that when we, the people, I mean, it's like the preamble yes, to the is. Constitution. It is. Like, they took this, like, this is serious. And uh, it goes on, uh, we, um, a part of the people of the United States do demand our free and equal rights, the same as any other corporate bodies or mechanical and manufacturing corporations as ordained and established to the people as the Constitution for the United States of America. I mean, remember, this is, so I just think what's really fascinating about this is that this is language that we as- normally associate with individuals, yes. um, with particular people yes. claiming these things. Yes. And this is being claimed in the context of an economic transaction, the creation of a corporation. Yes. You know, what's really fascinating is this is, uh, I would say, about a decade before the 14th Amendment, mm-hmm. which established citizens' rights or the rights of citizenship and the Equal Protection yep. Clause, which it later in the century, it is this very same equal protection clause that is used by companies to claim protection from, you know, from regulation and so forth. Like, so presciently, (laughs) Freeman Murrow and his his company is claiming equal protection under the law uh, both as individuals but as a as a corporation. It's kind of brilliant. It is, absolutely. But it tells you that the roots of that that for all those companies, even to this day, that use the 14th Amendment to claim equal protection, the roots of that could possibly be first articulated in this little old uh, brush company's Absolutely. Articles of Incorporation. And, and how um, uh, up for debate these notions and boundaries of citizenship actually were at the time, especially in a country where one group of people is considered to is considered free yes. and another people yes. is absolutely yes. not yes. Right? keep in mind this is 1854 right then it goes on to say so here's the other really interesting yes. section 
And in order that we may be supported in the enjoyment of mechanical arts, productive labor, establishing and opening workshops for ourselves and our children to provide other means of support for our wives and daughters than perpetual servitude as scrubbers and washing servants to others and to alleviate ourselves from our former and present low conditions. This is fascinating use of uplift language, right. but it's also very attentive to issues of gender. Yes. yes. I think one thing that is so interesting to me here as a gender historian is a vision of citizenship that includes the ability for women to not have to operate as laborers in the public sphere, right? So it is a vis vision of citizenship that actually is about the particular shape of a family, again, not just an individual. But it also is this, I think, incredibly important reminder of um, like the social construction of the notion of, of separate spheres, the idea that women stayed home in the 19th mm -hmm. century. First of all, they didn't, but especially women of color mm -hmm, did not, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And so the experience of being a laborer and particularly being a domestic labor work that is menial work that is the lowest paid work that was a that was a, a common experience for black women at the time and so the ability to sort of free up their wives and their daughters from doing this was a central vision of the economic success of this company yeah i mean and this is why you know an intersectional understanding of the history of women's experiences in the United States is really important, right? Because the desire to provide relief to women uh, from these forms of labor is less so about denying them economic independence yeah. as it is about um, protecting them from exploit ex right. from exploitation, which was a very real threat. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, so the other thing that I think is fascinating because if this passage goes on. You know, they he says, you know, our right as free citizens of the United States and by means of productive labor, whereby we may cultivate, strengthen and employ our inventive genius as authors and producers equally with other men. There is this very important difference here throughout this document, but particularly in this passage between the idea of menial labor and productive labor, right? between the idea of skilled labor mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and unskilled labor. And I think there's some really important context here in the 19th century as you have your sort of in the middle of this shift away from ideas of artisans, of skilled laborers, of apprentices being trained up to be masters, um, a very sort of pre-Civil War vision of labor to one after the Civil War where you have sort of largely unskilled, casual labor, um, but very much being fueled by growing numbers of immigrants moving mm -hmm. into the United States. Mm -hmm. This is a like a real transitional time where the very notion of work had enormous value systems that were ascribed to this. And what I feel like Murrow and his fellow trustees are saying here is we want to work, right? Like we are workers. We will help build this country. We will, we will elevate ourselves and with it, this country. But we um, it's a particular kind of work, right? It's skilled work. It's the work that employs our genius. And this is the this is where we see the, the future of our race. What I'm so excited, and I don't know if people can hear the excitement. We love it. <laughs> we this love so this. Is that... <laughs> Um, that Im that is an important statement because this is coming a good forty years before Booker T. Washington's greatly known Atlanta Exposition speech, where he makes this claim of the essential participation of Black people in the economy, mm -hmm. right, as a way to say like we are uh, an indispensable part of the nation's progress and. And I think there is that element of that here, of both um, racial uplift but American progress that, that these articles of incorporation are trying to speak to. Like, let us do this, and we have these skills, and we're not just disposable, and we're not so easily replaced because we're bringing these very specific skills to this business enterprise. And that was just... On the first page of this I know, document. I know. <laughs> it's incredible. Well, and as we get into the rest of the document, it begins to look a lot more like your sort of standard incorporation document. It lays out rules. It lays out bylaws. It lays out trustees. The the worth of the stock, the nature of stock increases. All the all of the boring details that you were you were yawning yeah, at at the yeah. very beginning. I, I right? honestly skimmed through these. <laughs> skimmed through those, these and sections. I think that's okay. Yeah. Although actually, I have to say, there's like a lot of really interesting details in there about where they can. 
sell and where they can't sell. That has, shows a lot of tensions between the state and the city. But that's maybe a different podcast. Yeah. Because once we get to page 15, we have a shift back to this political language in something I, I don't think I've letter, literally ever seen before right. in an article on corporation. The inclusion of poetry. Yeah, and titled, and listeners, if any of you out yeah. here can help us decode this beyond what our kind of, his, you know, historically informed guesses are going to be, it's titled Tornado. It just says Tornado, period. And then subtitle, For a Warfare of Civil Rights and Not Bloodshed. Now, remember, we're talking 1855. Right. So we're still six years out from the Civil War. That doesn't mean that there hasn't already been bloodshed. You know, we have the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850. We have Bleeding Kansas. This is a time where blood has already been shed in the name of union. Yeah, and in in 1854, the political party system collapses into new, very regional divisions with the birth of the Republican Party, which is primarily a northern party advocating for the end of slavery spread into new territories and, and, and among radical Republicans advocating for its abolition. So this is swirling around. And this, the passage that this introduced introduces uh, this poem, says union is strength. So in my mind, and mm-hmm. it's very interesting, Julie and yeah. I had these different responses, but in my mind, that's what was I, that was what was in my head, was the, the language of union hasn't really emerged yet in terms of the yeah. union versus the Confederacy, but I'm thinking civil war, because, you know, this is this is on the verge of what is this, this conflict. Well, and I don't think you're wrong, but I think, I think you know, what, it, it's another way in which yeah. Moreau is totally prescient to the yeah. things that we're going to come over the next decades, but I'm going to read the whole this whole introductory paragraph because it's pretty fascinating, um, it, it laden, if you will. Um, Union is strength. Strength is power. A humble power commands the honor, love, and respect both of God and man. Union, righteously combined with wisdom, supports and strengthens the rights of nations and the freedoms of all men. So I was thinking exactly what you were thinking, but also I couldn't help but bring my mind to unions, yeah, right? To the yeah. idea of trade unions, um, to the idea, again, of productive work and the idea of God-ordained work. Yes. So this to me also has, there is language that is almost Masonic yeah, um, yeah. And, and and hearkening back to kind of those, those artisans unions right, of the right. 1830s and 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, combined with the language of this period of, right. of civil rights and then the idea of um a warfare of rights not bloodshed yeah really again sort of nodding towards what seems like it is going to be the inevitable happening of the next decade and the poem bears out all of these insights right so i'm I'm, i think we're going to switch off reading the stanzas Mm -hmm. but they're so great uh so the first one the implements of freedom are the hammer plane and saw the plow hoe and shovel and muscular power at war Support to our redemption from our degraded state. All we want is union and every chain will break. To hold the mason's trowel, the square and compass too, indicates our wisdom and God will guide us true. First of all, Zahir and I have done a little research and we actually can't find evidence of this poem anywhere. We weren't sure if it was that he was copying it from something. So if any of our listeners can give us a source for this other than this, we would be thrilled and to And we know. give you a shout out. We will on the give next you a episode. full <laughs> shout out in the next episode. Um, so it's it's so funny. This this can both be a rallying cry for the union in the coming war, but this could also be a rallying cry for organizing <laughs> unions. Exactly. Right? Exactly. It's awesome. And maybe is both. And if yeah. so, that's freaking brilliant, yeah. right? Um, and I think this idea of again the tying of the of access and the experience of freedom to the idea of productive labor and the idea that freedom and labor are God ordained yes. is, I think, yes. central to this entire yes. document. Yes. yes. In this Voices of Brooklyn segment, we're going to listen to an oral history interview with Mark Winston Griffith, who is currently the executive director of Brooklyn Movement Center. In 1991, Griffith co-founded with Errol Lewis the Central Brooklyn Federal Credit Union, which became the largest community-based financial cooperative. This interview is taken from the Voices of Crown Heights oral history collection. We started organizing for the credit union. 
we started getting what were called pledges, um, getting people to sign up to join. Um, we started training in how to manage a credit union. We identified, we identified possible board members. And, we, and we, we essentially went to the federal regulators and said, you know, you've abandoned this neighborhood for too long. We want you to support it through a, a charter for a credit union. It's a much different time. At that time, there was, a, there was a movement and a lot of different what are called community development credit unions were started at that time. It's very hard to get one started now. Um, and there was also something called the CDFI Fund, Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, that was started by Clinton. And we were actually the first credit union chartered under the Clinton administration. So I was organizing this credit union um, between 1991 and 1993. And in early 1993, we received our charter to start the credit union. And we had our grand opening. And our first office, well, our, when I was at the Central Brooklyn Partnership, our, our first office was actually on my block at 1251 Dean Street, which, used to, which was the site of the Brooklyn Urban League, the Brooklyn chapter of the Urban League. The Brooklyn, chapter, the, the Brooklyn Urban League has since moved or sold that building. So that was our first office, but when the credit union was chartered, we opened up our branch and the, the office for the Central Brooklyn Partnership, which were together in restoration, in an office in restoration, which we retrofit with bulletproof glass and all this stuff to take in depositors. And at the time, this was a moment also when the Community Reinvestment Act, the CRA, was high in popularity and there were a lot of organizations that were being funded by banks to compensate for the fact that they um, were, did not have deposits in black and low and moderate income areas. So Manufacturers Hanover, Chemical, and Chase Bank all consolidated at some point in time. And that mean, meant that they, they, left, they, they left some of their branches. Um, and so what they did was they ended up giving us one of their bank branches for the credit union, which was on the corner of Bedford Avenue and Fulton, which is now a, uh, a renter center, ironically so. Um, I mean, it's poetic. Um, and we got that building in 1994. And when we got that building, it enabled us to grow like leaps and bounds. We were, you know, we got a lot of press attention. We were in the New York Times. We were on the McNeil Nair News Hour. We were on Like It Is. Um, we were on all these different news, we were in Essence, um, Newsweek, and so we were blowing up. We were becoming like little celebrities, and within the first few years we became the biggest credit union of our kind in the country. Um, and we were seen as like these young sort of Afrocentric, you know, like our politics were uh, black, but, but we were still green in terms of recognizing the, um, the economic potential of our neighborhood. I mean, be quite honest with you, I was an English major. I got my English degree as a graduate student too. I knew shit about this stuff. I went in there as an organizer and I was like, you know, we can do something that, that hasn't been done before. And I just saw it as a way of building of creating an institution that, that was all about black self-determination. Um, I think that Errol was a little bit more sort of econo economically development-minded than I was. Um, but we started this institution, and again, people saw us as having all these uh, black nationalist credentials and starting what was a black cooperative. And so we became known as like the Black Bank um, and Black Bankers and the Bed-Stuy Bank. And we also became known as the, as, as the Hip Hop Credit Union because I had dubbed it that in our, our speech. Um, 
that I gave in our grand opening and the New York Times picked it up and people started calling us the, the hip hop credit union because I was saying that, you know, and I had, I was just starting to grow dreadlocks at the time, which was a, which was associated with hip hop um, in the, this, you know, whatever. Um, this is the early nineties, right? Um, so my, my thing was hip hop took music from the, from the past, re-spins it and puts a whole new kind of sound and sensibility over it. And my thing was, this is what we were doing with the credit union. I mean, I was very conscious of our history and my connections to um, the East, to Al Van, to the African Street Festival, to um, G2 WayUC, to Paragon, which was another credit union that existed before. Um, very much, very conscious of that history that I and this institution was a part of. So I think this clip really takes all the themes we've been talking about this episode and brings them right up to the end of the 20th century. But I also think it's interesting to think about how the like the cultural and political meaning behind a black owned business and a business that's by black people and for black people actually is change right. changes yeah. in the 20th yeah. century. Yeah. Because um, one thing I'm struck by um, in terms of Mark's interview is the way that it became something that was deeply marketable mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and actually was part of the branding process and um, the outreach process um, for the for the credit union, which ultimately would have like, you know, sort of made or broke its success. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think of this comparing this to the challenges that Friedman Miro had. He couldn't even get his work acknowledged by the American Institute. Right. And here is this effort over a century later almost a century and a half later, uh, where the major media recognizing it, where public policy is supporting it, you know, reinvestment legislation is enabling this. So I thought it's, it's a clear indication of how uh, important the political context is yeah. to these endeavors. There is a tension, I think, that emerges about how much should an activist-inclined person or organization utilize the tools of capitalism? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, there is this line. Can you be black and green? Yeah, there's <laughs> that line where yeah. he says our politics were black, yeah. but we were still green. And I think coming out of the civil rights movement and coming out of the black power movement, there was a, a, a great number of scholars and activists who became deeply critical of integration into the capitalist machine, yeah. right? And you have that, but on the other hand, you have like very real material needs, yeah. right? That people have to satisfy in the current system, in the current social order. There is that tension, and I think is part of this. Well, and it's also reflective of which phase of capitalism we're talking about, because for somebody like Murrow in the mid-19th century, capitalism was the only way out, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it offered the only tools to, like, the quote-unquote elevation right, right. Um, of African Americans um, in America at the time. But, you know, one thing I think that ties their experiences together is that they both are building businesses on the backs of an infrastructure of political activism. Yeah. And so I was really, you know, struck when when Mark was talking about, you know, the East and 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 G2 WUC yeah, it's like yeah. this is an this is an incredibly important part of the, his envisioning yeah, of the credit union yeah. in the same way that uh, Murrow was talking about, you know, how important it was for him to have many of the people from the anti-slavery movement right. as the trustees um, and how important it was for them to elevate opportunities for the women in their lives and the same kind of political foundations um, tying politics um, to commerce. There is a sense of triumph here that the ability to merge this uh, activist impulse with business and be able to provide business services to your community, I think is a, it, there is this moment to celebrate, but it isn't without its challenges. Yeah. And let's actually hear from Mark and what he has to say about the challenges that the credit union faced over the next several years. The problem was we grew too quickly. The problem was we had really high expenses because we had inherited, we had owned this building, but we also had this other property adjacent to it where we had to pay rent. And so the operation costs were really high. 
And then, um, you know, we were, people were coming to us from everywhere for, for, for loans. That's how credit unions make their money. And at some point in time, one, because of an economic downturn, two, because our underwriting criteria was just not strong enough, our, you know, our portfolio started to explode. People weren't paying us back. You know, listening to Mark talk about the challenges in sustaining this effort really does point, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about why people were skeptical of using capitalist tools. Oftentimes, these efforts weren't sufficient enough to alter the very um, hardwired systemic uh, ways that resources were allocated or organized uh, or had been accessed. And so there are a couple of things that sounds like it happens, right? Like because this is providing a resource that people have had limited access to, it becomes overwhelmed and it's unable mm-hmm. to su- to provide the full support that the community needs. And then on the other side, it isn't getting the same kind of benefits that other more established credit unions had. And so I think this, um, while it was a moment to celebrate, sounds it also is a cautionary tale that these efforts alone had limits to their potential to bring about like a more complete freedom that whether the kind that Gloucester or Murrow or even here, Mark uh, Griffith and, and, and Errol Lewis envisioned for their communities. Yeah. There, I mean, I think there's also this important context of like very late stage capitalism where this is a period in which you're really in a transition in which local banks, grassroots banks are disappearing. Yeah. And they haven't yeah. yet, right? Yeah. And there's a real interest in saving them and protecting them. But, you know, when we think about the landscape of banking today, you know, it's almost impossible for these smaller yeah. institutions to actually thrive. And, it, and so part of this story is about a moment in which this gets sort of caught up in a transitional and sort of a paradigm shift, right? But it, but it is, I've been thinking a lot about this while listening to this, you know, it's, Mark comes from a background of grassroots. He is a community organizer. Yeah. This is a fundamentally grassroots organization. Yeah. And it raises this fascinating question of can this can this succeed in a capitalist system? Right. You know, I right. mean, can this approach, this sort of grassroots and activist approach to their business, was it was it ever possible for it to ha- you know to succeed in the long term? And I mean, it doesn't not right, right because right. people should listen to the full oral history. It's up on the portal right now. I mean, the credit union survives. It's taken over for a little while right. by the government, right. and then it goes back on its own. It merges right. with another one, and so um, it has its own sort of story to tell. But it's this fascinating moment where you see both the benefits and the challenges of these ties to grassroots political activism. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Thanks to our guest, Preeti Kanakamedala. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush dash Maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia.